Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor. With mixed market bet builders, in-play betting and a selection of welcome offers, make sure your Premier League is spent with BetVictor's premier betting app. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, everyone. What's up? Chelsea fans, I hope you're all feeling good. This is Xavier Mbuyamba. And you're listening to the Blue Day Podcast. Enjoy. Fellow Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast, I am pleased to welcome this individual on the podcast today. He made 74 appearances for the club, scoring two goals. Plus, he was part of the 1977 team that won promotion back to the first division. Here is John Sparrow. John, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? Very well, Keith. Thank you very much. Good. John, I want to take you back to the early days of your career. Who were your footballing idols growing up as a kid? Um, well, when I was maybe about uh, eight or nine, my elder brother and his friend used to take me to Tottenham. Um, and that was when they had uh, Gilzeen and Greaves and uh, Mike England, Phil Bill. Um, and Jimmy Greaves was you know, just something else. He was uh, the best goal scorer I've ever seen. Um, never lashed the ball. He just seemed to always pass it into the goal. Um, and so uh, Jimmy Greaves was uh, one of my favourites. And also um, my school being in Bethnal Green in, in East London, um, we shall obviously follow West Ham. And West Ham's uh, left winger, at the time was Johnny Sissons and I was playing left wing for my school team and we got the same initials so obviously he was one of my favourites as well. Did you manage to see Greaves live when you was watching football? Yeah, yeah, see him quite a few times here yeah, down at White Hart Lane, yeah, yeah and, and with uh, later on Johnny Sissons come to Chelsea and um they say never meet your heroes, but he was such a nice bloke. He was fantastic. And uh, um, I told him the story and uh, he was laughing. But um, he, uh, yeah, it was, it was good to, to meet him and play with him on occasion. Did anybody influence you to become a professional footballer or was it more of yourself wanting to achieve that career? Um. I've got a brother five years older than me and he used to play for a local Sunday club called Senrab. Um, 
and then from that, I used to go and watch them train and play on a Sunday. Um, I was about eight or nine, and then I would start training with the youngsters and then gradually got into the team. Um, and then from there, I went to Chelsea uh, to train Tuesday and Thursday nights. And our Sinmab team um, was like a Chelsea feeder team, if you like, because uh, Ray Lewington was playing, Ray Wilkins, Teddy Maybank, uh, myself. So we had you know, a real decent side. Um, football has always been, ever since I could remember, just kicking a ball. It was always there, you know. You mentioned about Chelsea's academy. You came through the academy at Chelsea, being the academy as it is now to comparing it way back then. What was the academy set up like when you was there? You know, and who was the best player you played with in the youth side? Um, well, officially, you weren't allowed to have proper matches. So in the school holidays, you would go down for trial games. Um, and then they would bring in other people that was possibly looking at, as well as the ones that were training twice a week. Um, obviously, Ray Wilkins was class, even as a even as a kid. You know, he he was uh, he could pass the ball with two feet. Um, he used to get forward, score goals. Um, no, it was just uh, we we sort of grew up together, um, and to see him like he obviously kicked on to England, etc. Just he just proved what a good player he was. For those that perhaps may not have seen Ray Wilkins play football and a volley remembered him as a pundit or as a coach, what was he like as a player? You know, with the ball at his feet, and a lot of people who I've spoken to said, you know, what kind of a leader he was, either with Chelsea or with the other clubs. What what type of player was Ray Wilkins, John? He, he he could just see things, you know. He, he could see things that normal players couldn't see, and he had the ability to see it but deliver the pass into the right place. Um, yeah, he was a leader. He used to lead by example, but he'd also give you a volley if he thought you'd done something uh, wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a different character on the pitch to off the pitch. You know, off the pitch you couldn't find a a better man, you know, um, on the pitch, he was a winner and he, he wouldn't accept anything less, you know. When it came to the moment where you signed your first professional contract with Chelsea, what was that moment for you like? Well, it was just, obviously, I'd signed schoolboy forms with them when I was 14. Then I signed Apprentice when I was 15. And the next thing is that you, you've got a it's not, you, you're not finished. You're not the finished article. You've got to kick on. The next thing is that you're just desperate to sign pro. And I was fortunate enough to have played in the first team when I was 16. Um, and so on my 17th birthday, I signed uh, professional forms. And you made your debut for Chelsea in March of 1980. 19- 1974, excuse me. Sorry about that. Do you remember who it was against? Yeah, it was Burnley. Yeah, it was on an afternoon because of the uh, strikes that were going on. And um, I think there was 8,000 there. And we won 3-0. Yeah, I'll never forget it. What was that moment like for you? Uh, You're just proud, you know. Mm. My my mum and dad was in the crowd and like we had other family. 
and obviously nervous, but uh, yeah, just wanted to get on and do your best, you know, for everybody. When did you know that you was going to be in the squad? Was it on the day of the game or was it, say, like the day before? Um, well, we was in the squad. I'd been training with the first team. Um, and then I wasn't told until uh, the day of the game that I was going to be playing. So that was... Uh, I think I was quite quite glad about that, really. So I don't think I would have got much sleep the night before if I, uh, if I would have known. <laughs> Dave Sexton was the coach at the time. What was he like to play under? He was a great coach, Dave. Um, you know, he was uh, he was to me ahead of his his time. You know, the things we used to do in training. He was meticulous, eye for detail, um, and also he, he let the flair players like uh, Charlie uh, Cook, um, Aussie when he was when he was there. Um, they used to have their head, you know, Alan Hudson. Um, they weren't confined to a particular place on the pitch. They could just go and play. So there was a structure around their flair. You've mentioned a few names there, likes of Peter Osgood and Alan Hudson. What were they like both on and off the pitch with you? Yeah, they was they was fine. I think it's um, nowadays it's a lot different. You know, I remember being an apprentice, putting the kit out for the players, then you go and collect the kit. And and then I went home one day because John Dempsey said to me, hello, John, he knew my name. And it was like, I had to go and tell my mum and dad that, you know, it was, you, you looked at them in a different light. You know, they was, they was where you wanted to get to. And you was, uh, they was your idols, really. And I don't think that happens so much these days, you know. But uh, no, they was fine. There was never any uh, problem with the uh, youngsters like joining in and playing. The, the next season, you had a decent run in the Chelsea side between February and April, which culminated in you getting your first goal for the club. How pleased was you to get your first goal for the club, albeit playing either as a left-sided midfielder or even as a left-back? And was you happy with the amount of games you was getting at, at that point, considering your age and experience? Yeah, obviously, you, you, I, I knew that I wasn't going to go in and play 42 league games a season. Um, and you go in and, and then you're taken out. You know, it's, it's done. You've got to be managed as a kid. Otherwise, you can just peak too early and then that'll be the end of it. Um, obviously, you wanted to play more, but you understood the reasons why you wasn't. That's understandable. The club suffered relegation to the second division of that season. What was going through your mind at, at that stage? And what was the team morale like in regards to what they were thinking based on now that the club was in the second division? Well, you've got to understand that Chelsea were going through a financial crisis at that stage with the new stand being built and then all the strikes and that was always delayed and it was more money and more money. Um, Aussie, was, Aussie went, uh, Alan Hudson went, um, there was obviously a change of managers. Um, it was quite, a, the, the club was in a bit of uh, upheaval really. Um, but 
over the course of the season, if you go down, you deserve to go down. It's as simple as that. A lot was, a lot has been said, excuse me, of the changes that was going on at the club at that period. As you say, you know, Osgood left because of issues with between himself and Dave Sexton, Alan Hudson left. What were your thoughts going at that stage? You know, being a young player and you're seeing icons at the club leave and whereby the club really should be progressing to the next level after winning the FA Cup a few years beforehand. What was going through your mind? Was you sort of thinking about maybe moving? Was there sort of a part of you that wanted to you know, seek new challenges? What was going through your mind at that stage? Never ever thought of moving. Um, I, I think looking back, it was a chance for more youngsters to come into the side because the club couldn't really afford to go out and buy players. And it was, it was an opportunity for all of us, you know. Eddie McCready took over the coach's role of April of, of that season before the end of the season that year. What are your thoughts of Eddie McCready, both as a player and as a person? Well, as a player and as a person, he was exactly the same. He was mad. You know, he was uh, he was such a nice bloke. Um, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the cup final replay uh, against Leeds when he's nearly kicked Billy Bremner's head off. Um, he uh, just, that always makes me laugh when I say that, you know, because... Uh, I wonder if it'll be giving us a foul today, you know? <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> I think it'll be a six-month suspension the way it's going, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, so, um, no, he was uh, he was great, Eddie. He just, um, as a man-manager, he made, in the dressing rooms, he would speak to you before the game and you would go out onto the pitch and it doesn't matter who you was playing against, you just thought that you was better than the opposition. And you just had to go out and prove it. And um, everything with him in training was short and sharp, uh, pass the ball, move. Um, and he, he was great for the club. You know, he was, he was great for uh, the side. Was it different having someone who was a player at the club then become the coach? Was there a lot of difference in how things were going and how the players reacted to what Eddie wanted? Um, no, I don't think so. I think he got respect straight away. Um, the players that played with him longer, obviously like Ron uh, and uh, John Ollins and whatever, they they may have found it more difficult um, because he was a teammate. But to us, um, he, we was there sort of at the end of his career when we were starting. And uh, he was the manager as far as we was concerned. At this stage under Eddie, did you sort of find any challenges in becoming a regular starter at Chelsea? Because you sort of had a few games sort of under your belt at that particular season and then you was off from the team sheet, so to speak. What challenges did you have to cope with while at Chelsea? Um, Well, obviously, uh, we had Ronnie Harris that would play left-back at times. Graham Wilkins played left-back and he also played right-back. Uh, Graham played um, most probably two-thirds of our uh, promotion-winning season. Um, I was sub an awful lot. Mm. 
Um, and it's just a question of biding your time. He, I used to, used to go and see Eddie and say, Eddie, why aren't I playing? And he used to say, you're my baby. I love you. Don't worry. And you'd walk out um, of his office. You still weren't playing, but you felt happier, you know. Um, and it was just when you got in, you had to make sure you took the most of the opportunity. How key was that for you? And even looking now in football today, how key is communication between player and coach of what you want out of your career and what the manager wants out of you for his sake? Oh, I think it's it's just so important. You know, the uh, dialogue between the, the player and the uh, the manager... If you're not playing, you want to know why you're not playing. Yeah. You want a manager that's honest with you to tell you why you're not playing and for you to do something about it. Um, it's very simple for uh, managers to give you a load of rubbish um, because they haven't got the uh, the front to tell you exactly. Um, and also, you, you want honesty. And I don't. I think a problem in today's game is honesty. Did you find that in your career that a manager or coach or even someone higher up at the club was perhaps giving you some false information, maybe that was giving you something that you wanted to hear? Did you find that at all while you was playing football? Uh, No, I mean, Eddie was, he was great. Hmm. Um, We had Danny Blanche Flower who didn't even know I played in the first team. Right. Um, he just had his, the first team that he considered and, and, and that was it. He, he was more interested in playing golf, basically. Um, okay. You know, we, we our pre-season with Danny was unbelievable. Um, he, he, this is dead true that we would play 22 aside with two footballs because he said, if you can find space with 40 players on the pitch, when there's only 20 players on the pitch, it's easy. And this is pre-season when he's supposed to be getting fit. And he would have you dribbling around cones with three footballs. Because if you can do it with three, it's easy if you do it with one. And players that moan about they play too many games these days, we used to play a full practice match in training every day, first team versus the reserves. Every day. So with your match on a Saturday, you was playing five games a week. So um, it's, you just couldn't do it, you know, especially with the state of the pitches and the, and the difference in the balls, etc., and the equipment. I want to talk about Chelsea's promotion campaign that they got back up to the first division under Eddie McCready. What was that moment like for you, for your career, considering that you started your career with the club and how the the fans reacted especially after that game against Hull City, you know, the, the highlights you, you can be seen where fans were eager to get onto the pitch and Eddie McCready was on the microphone asking them to basically stay in the stadium and not get on the pitch until the game finished. Well, I mean, it was imperative that we went up. You know, Chelsea is a first division club or a Premier League club, you know, and being in the in the second division as was, was not good enough. Um, the fans were unbelievable. When we played at Wolves, 
um, and we drew 1-1, which meant both teams were promoted. Um, the Chelsea uh, supporters were supposedly banned from attending away matches because of trouble, and there must have been 10,000 of them in the stadium. <laughs> you know, it was uh, unbelievable. So uh, it was, you know, and then to play when we played Hull, when they kept running on the pitch, you could sort of like understand, you know, there was just pure delight in us winning and going back up again, you know. What was the celebrations like afterwards, especially that game against Hull when the season was pretty much finished and you was now able to say that you are now a first division club again? I think, um, to tell you the truth, I can't remember much of a celebration after the, the whole game. Um, coming home from Wolves, we had one or two uh, lagers on the, on the uh, coach coming home, and that was more of a, a celebration. Um, but uh, the whole game, I think we just had a, had a few beers, and people like, drifted off their own, to their own celebrations, you know. That summer, Eddie McCready left his role as coach with Ken Ascioletto taking over. What was your thinking of that decision? And have you got any stories about Ken that you can possibly share with us? Well, first of all, it was a crazy, crazy decision by the board to sack Eddie. Um, I don't it didn't come as much of a surprise, really, because I think Eddie used to battle for the players and going to board meetings and if they were trying to cut things or whatever I'm sure he would stand up and have a row with them and I think when, when we got promoted they see that as a chance to get rid of um, someone who's a bit of a thorn in their side um, and bring in someone else um, Ken we'd known from kids because he training on a Tuesday and Thursday night he took the um the youth team. He, he was fantastic. He was he was great with with kids, um, the training and, and his ability. Um, you know, we used to be practicing volleys, and he would never miss. He would just score every one. He was a fantastic uh, player. Um, but whether he had the right um, the right aptitude for uh, the first team is a different matter. I think he was much better with the uh, the apprentices as was. Was there a difference in coaching methods between Eddie and Ken? Was there, uh, say, for example, a bit of an issue when it came to c- communication and training practices at all? Ken was, he was pretty straight, Ken. He, he would tell you as it was. Um, which you know you don't mind. Um, there wasn't an awful lot of difference in the training, but it was the actual before the games, the team talks, the man management. To you know, confidence is a great thing in football, and you could go out on the pitch and believe you're ten percent better than what you are, and play like it. You know, and if and it's all all down to man management. I want to talk about the, the season after. So Chelsea are now back in the first division, doing okay in the league. One game that stands out to some people who I've spoken to about this particular era was in the FA Cup at Stamford Bridge against Liverpool, who were arguably the top team at that period. 
We won the game 4-2. You started that game, John. What are your memories of that occasion? Yeah, well, Clive Walker was unplayable that day. Um, I'm not sure if Jerry Jones ever played for Liverpool again after that because Clive just absolutely slaughtered him. Um, He he was really quick, Clive, direct, um, would push the ball 20 yards past someone, give them two yards and still beat them by five, you know. Um, Now, that was a great day. That was a great day. Um, Very enjoyable, you know, to, to take on Liverpool, who were the best side in the country, much probably in Europe at that stage. And to give them a, a real beating was, uh, was something special. You've mentioned Clive Walker. His name hasn't been sort of mentioned too much on the podcast. And I know that he does do a lot of stuff for Chelsea TV. But what kind of a player was he for Chelsea? Uh, he was just uh, a goal scorer for, for a left winger that could score goals worth his weight in gold. Um, I think I've done more running outside him and never got the ball than anybody else because I used to say that I had a duck on my head. I was like the old decoy in the pond. You know, it was... Uh, <laughs> oh, you, you'd go past him and he'd always cut inside. But because he was so quick that if the defenders stood off him, he would cut inside them. And he, he, had, he could just go past them easy as anything. And he, he had a terrific shot on him and uh, he scored lots of goals, you know. Very difficult to play against. Now, the summer of 1978, you went out on loan to Millwall. How did that move come about? And was it more your decision to leave or was it Chelsea's? Well, after after we played Liverpool... Um, we did, the week after that, we played Coventry and got Wallop 5-1. I think we were still celebrating the Liverpool game. Then in training that week, um, my knee broke down. Right. Um, and I was out for quite a while, quite a long time. Um, they kept saying it wasn't cartilage, it was ligaments, and I'd have treatment. They'd push me back out in the reserves. I'd last 10 minutes and then it would go again. Um, and I, I eventually had... Uh, surgery for the cartilage problems and Millwall was kind of trying to get back fit again and playing um, when you've played first team football it's very difficult when you go back into the reserves and you'd much rather playing in a first team somewhere uh, than it playing in a reserve uh, match You returned to Chelsea a few months later was there a conversation between you and the hierarchy about plans going forward between you and the club? Uh, no, not really. Just went back and, and started training again. Um, under Danny Blanchflower, he had no interest outside the first team. Jeff Hurst was reserve team manager. He took over uh, the first team. Um, and uh, him and Bobby Gould, and um, there was a, a couple of us that most probably weren't living right. Um, we weren't involved in the first team. Um, and myself and Lee Frost, we used to have to go back of an afternoon and do extra training to try and sh- shift a bit of weight, which was, was fair comment. Um, and they put me on the transfer list. And then 
they took me off the transfer list because I'd lost lost the weight. Then I was back in the the, the first team again, um, and it was going going quite well. Uh, but then um, they bought um, Dennis Rofe that took over the left back position, and I was back in the reserves again. Um, so that was I could see the basically the writing was on the wall for me then. You know that uh, to leave had to leave the club. Just a quick mention about Jeff Hurst. What was he like as a coach? I know he was only there for a, a bit of a short period at Chelsea, and you said that he was there as the reserve manager. Was there a difference in his methods from what you've been used to? And how was he with the first team squad? Bear it in mind, this is a guy who did win the World Cup with England in 66. Uh I think that's what he relied on. He, he, he relied on him scoring a hat-trick in the World Cup final. Um, we didn't really get on too well. Um, so, uh, they we had a big meeting one day. Uh, the first team were doing quite well. There was a big meeting and he started taking a pop at the reserves saying, why aren't you coming in to see me about you not playing? Well, that's, a, that's an easy time to do it because if you go in to the manager and say, why aren't I playing? He'll say, well, the first team are doing well. You know, so you're not going to get a, a game anyway. Um, and in the reserves, I was playing centre-back and I wasn't going to get into the first team as centre-back. And I said to him, I don't want to play centre-back in the reserves anymore. I want to play left-back because that's my best chance of getting in the first team. Basically, he said, you're never going to play for me again. So, obviously, time to move. As you sort of did touch on it, I want to discuss your departure from Chelsea. You left the club to join Exeter City. My original question was, what was you? What was the thinking behind the move? But as you've mentioned about, you've had the conversation with Jeff Hurst. I'm um, considering. I think I already know the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah, it's just that yeah. uh, he wasn't going to play me. I was, you know, twenty, whatever I was, twenty three. Um, been played in the first team on and off since I was 16 couldn't go back and play in the reserves all the time and, and I wasn't one just to kick my heels and do that you know um, and so it was time to to go Looking back all these years later do you believe that was the right decision? Uh, no because I think uh, I went in the January and Jeffers was sacked in the March. So, uh, obviously, if I would have hung around, you, you never know, the new manager may have fancied the way I played. Um, but hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, you can't... Uh, it's, it's easy looking back and saying, oh, that decision was wrong or whatever. You know, at the time, it was the right decision to make. I understand that. John, I want to talk about football of today you know the modern game and one aspect that some people are saying it's good for football other people are saying it's killing football is VAR so I've asked this question to all me other guests on the podcast John so I'd like to ask you what are your thoughts on VAR hate it hate it yeah (laughs) right I see yeah I think it's just taken all the uh, enjoyment at the game, um, 
I would add, I would add the goal line technology because that is it's a, it's a goal or it's not a goal. Um, but I would, I would leave it at that. Uh, referees are human. They make, they will make mistakes. And they say that over the course of the season, it balances itself out. I don't think that's true myself personally, because I think the bigger teams always get more decisions than the smaller teams. Um, scoring a goal is the greatest thing you can do on a football pitch. And the feeling is like nothing else. But now you score a goal and then you sit, stand there looking at the, the replay. Is it going to go? The fans don't know whether to celebrate or not celebrate. I think it's just killing football. Um, if your top of your shoulder is offside, you're offside. Don't know where that can be. Um, it's uh, What they brought it in for was clear and obvious mistakes by the referee. But they've taken it so far. It's not. When they have to stand at a screen and look at a, a replay 10 or 15 times, that's not clear or obvious. That's right. You know, I would just get, I would just get rid of it. But a lot of managers was, wanted it because they was getting a bad decision. Oh, we should have this. We've got the technology, blah, blah, blah. It's come back to bite them. That's a good point. And as you say, that's, that's what football's all about, is scoring goals and you get that enjoyment either as a player or as a fan, seeing your team score, and then all of a sudden, two minutes later, VAR reviews on the screen and it's off. They've called it off for offside or a foul in the build-up. As you say, it it does take the sting out of the enjoyment of watching football. Well, you can't have two different rules for handball. Now, if a ball hits a, a player in the box, a forward in the box, and it bounces down and they score from it, that's handball. If the ball hits a defender's arm and it's cleared, that's not handball. So... I don't see how you can have two rules for handball. It's just a ridiculous situation. And because people moan, then they change it again. And then they change it again, you know. Um, and I don't see how they can change mid-season because what was maybe disallowed earlier on in the season is now allowed later on in the season. So that team, that it was disallowed. That could, that could cause them going down. It could cause them not making Europe, you know. Um, and... Today's game, there's so much money involved. Um, it's a wonder that these teams are not starting to say, hold on a minute, that was wrong. We'll sue them. Because I'm sure there'd be a case there. You know, they could miss out on you know, being relegated. It's going to cost you 100 million quid or something like that. It's not only that, it's people's jobs. The players will move on. But the kit man, the tea lady, the scouts, whoever, it's costing people's jobs. And I just think that um, get rid of it altogether. We'll move on from VAR. I think that I think that's pretty much been um, done and dusted with it. And you are not the only one who's mentioned on the podcast that they would get rid of it, but all barring the goal line technology. Um, John, I just want to talk about Chelsea at this moment in time. Recently, they've become European champions for the second time. It was a bonkers season, obviously changing the coach mid-season with Frank going and Thomas Tuchel taking over. They finish fourth, they lose the FA Cup final and then they end up beating City in the European Cup final. What are your thoughts on Chelsea at this moment in time, John? I think they need a few players, um, which sounds a bit crazy for 
winning the uh, Champions League, but I do think they need a few players to catch up with Manchester City, who are, over the course of the season, they've been the best team in the Premier by far. Um, they've, uh, I think, bringing in Thiago Silva at the back, I didn't, I'd seen him play on television, um, the odd game in, in Europe, but watching him in the, in the Premier League, he must have been unplayable when he was 25 and 26. He's just, he's like, to me, a modern Bobby Moore. He just reads the game and he's always there, you know. Um, I think he's a fantastic player. Uh, Kante, another another great player in midfield. Um, personally, I think they need a centre-back. Um, they need... I like Werner. I like his work rate. And I hope that he gets his confidence back because he scored all, all them goals in Germany. Um, at the minute, I think he's so short of confidence and he's snatching at anything. Like I said, going back to Jimmy Greaves, pass the ball into the goal. Um, they must probably need a, a forward that's going to score 20, 25 goals a season. Um, and if they get them, like them couple of players, and maybe add someone else, they could be a real threat next year. Well, let's hope. It'll be interesting what transpires in the transfer window, who signs, who goes. There's a lot of rumours at the moment about Chelsea players, so we'll see. But, John, last question I have for you today, and again, thank you for coming on to the podcast. How do you look back on your Chelsea career? Oh, loved it. Loved every minute of it. Um, it uh, apart from going, you know. Yeah. Uh, we was... Uh, Talk about team morale. We was all mates, you know. Uh, the the team that uh, the U, the Sedmab team that I was in with Butch, Ray, Lou, Teddy, uh, Tommy used to play Langley. Um, that was the the nucleus of the youth team, and then we got in the first team together. We were just been with each other since we was like ten years old, and um, it was more of a, a family than. You know, just colleagues, and uh, you used to enjoy, look forward to going in to training and to being with them. Um, yeah, it's a, I remember when I packed up playing, and um, I ended up I got a pub because in them days footballers got pubs because basically you only know how to do two things: one was play football, one was have a drink. So um, then I ended up. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, my marriage broke down and I ended up going to live with my mum and I became a milkman. And um, I'll never forget uh, one morning, about four o'clock in the morning, loading up the milk wagon. And uh, one of the people I work with said, do you miss playing football? And it's four o'clock in the morning, I'm loading up a milk wagon to go out and do a day's work. You know, I think, yes, I, I, I did miss it quite a lot, you know. But um, they, they was good times. They was good times. I don't know if today's players have the same kind of enjoyment. Um, they certainly don't have the same kind of freedom that we had. We, everybody's got camera phones and they can't do this and they can't do that. Um, but yeah, at the time it was uh, it was great. Well, John, I just want to say thank you for coming on to the Blue Day podcast today. I've enjoyed listening to your stories. I just want to say again, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem, Keith. Nice talking to you. 
This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.